welcome to the Profiles in Persistence show. I'm Dusty Rollins, founder and owner of Oxford Business Services. We help entrepreneurs and business owners maximize their profit and minimize their taxes. We believe there should be limits to how much the IRS can punish your success. Stick around to the end of the show and we'll reveal how you can be our next guest on this great inspirational daily podcast. Let's go. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and today I have with me uh, Keon Williams, and we are going to have a not only fascinating but incredibly important discussion about cybersecurity. So, Keon, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Sure. Thanks for having me. You've had a really interesting professional background, and I want, uh, wanted to see if you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so today I work in cybersecurity, but the story starts years ago when I was in the Army. So I started off as a chemical weapons specialist. I did nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons. And at the end of my military career, I was blessed to work in signal units. So the signal command facilitates all of the communications for the Army. And that's really where my cybersecurity career started because I understood and developed the practices for secure communications in a military context, and then it bled over into a civilian context. Um, from there, I worked at the Centers for Disease Control for 12 years. And after that, I've been doing consulting all over the world for all types of companies. And it's been a pretty interesting ride. So, um, first of all, uh, thank you for your service. Uh, and I, I talked to a fair number of cybersecurity professionals who came out of law enforcement, but uh, I rarely get to speak with someone who's come out from the military. And is the perspective uh, that you bring with your military background different or, or really similar from a, a law enforcement uh, personnel? Well, I think the thing that unites us, whether we went into the military or we served in law enforcement, is that both professions do a really good job of helping people to understand how do you protect assets and individuals. You know, in the military, as a chemical weapons specialist, we weren't direct combat, we weren't direct combatants. But we served on the front lines, especially when I was in a decontamination unit. And so you develop an understanding about what's important, how do you protect it, how do you set up the defensive measures, and all of those things you learn about physical security translate into what you do for digital security and cybersecurity. And I've never been a law enforcement professional, but I imagine that there are some similarities where there are all kinds of things that you learn in law enforcement training about protecting the perimeter and setting up defenses and looking out for people and getting them out of harm's way. And so I imagine that there is a similar methodology and mindset translating that physical work into cybersecurity and digital work. In 2014 or 2015, I had the opportunity to interview the then uh, uh, Chief uh, Information Security Officer at Coca-Cola. And it was a fascinating conversation. And at one point, he looked at me and he said, look, you know what I have to protect. I know what I have to protect. The bad guys know what I have to protect at all costs. And that's, you know, the formula. And he said, everything else would hurt, but that's the highest risk I have. And it really struck me uh, in listening to him because I come from another type of compliance where we talk about risk-based compliance and assessing your risk 
and managing your risk. And, and it really struck me that, and then he talked about layers of security uh, as it will go out throughout the Coca-Cola organization. Is that sort of layered approach similar to what uh, you would advocate or do you take a different route? No, I, I agree completely. You know, if, if you apply the concept of risk management to any situation, whether we're talking about your family and the things in your household or your trade secrets for your company, there's always some level of layers of defense. And so depending, I have no idea what the background of the audience is. I'm sure that we have great people from all practices, but if you look at it in terms of a household, under ideal circumstances, my most important items are gonna be in a safe, the safe is gonna be in a closet, the closet is gonna be in a room, Accessing that room requires that you go through multiple layers of rooms. And then I have a front door and I have an alarm system. And if I'm very fancy, <laughs> I live on a campus. I have a yard with a fence and guards. And all of those items represent multiple layers that a thief would have to go through to get to the safe, to steal my crown jewels or my gold bars or whatever else we want to use as an example. And that set of practices and all those things that people have to overcome reduces the likelihood that the thief or the attacker is going to gain access to what they're really looking for. Uh, in researching you and your company for this podcast, it struck me that you really emphasize education in, in uh, your entire approach. And why do you uh, see education as so important to cybersecurity at this point in time? Well, it starts with my military background. One of the things that I did for my military job was a, an activity that they call common task training. And so every individual in every type of unit, no matter their mission, every person has to understand the basic common tasks that describe the work of being in the army, because I was in the army, or for our other branches of service, they have common tasks as well. But it didn't matter whether you were a four-star general or an entry-level private, everybody had to be able to do the common tasks. But what that produced was an environment where everybody understood the mission, the goal, the procedure, how we accomplished the outcomes that we were looking for. And that struck me as one of the foundations of any kind of good security or risk management program because if the end users or the stakeholders don't understand the why, they're not gonna be very interested in what are we doing and how are we going to do it. One of the things that has intrigued me in my podcast career is I, I get to visit with a fair number of veterans like yourself. And um, really the last major conflict before the uh, this decade or this century, I would say, was probably Vietnam. And I was too young to interview folks back then. Uh, but now when I speak with people like yourself, they, they really emphasize the process and they emphasize their military training around process. Is that message that you bring, that you learned, you know, starting uh, back in the, the last decade of the last century, a message that resonates with your customer base or potential customers? Well, not all of my customers know or care that I was in the military, but I think good process is always a foundation of being able to measure the results of your execution and then identify where do we need to make changes. And so if we look at something like ISO 9000, which is a certification for processes, a lot of your manufacturing organizations achieve their success because they have good, well-defined, well-documented processes. And then if something goes wrong, they can look through the process and see, well, where was the breaking point and how can we make improvements? My thought is that if we follow the same approach for cybersecurity, and you have a clearly defined system, you understand the goals and the outcomes, you can formally document the level 
of trustworthiness that you're looking for, either for a specific system or the entire environment, now we can start to get into measurements and metrics that describe, are we achieving the goal or do we need to make adjustments because there's some deficiency or some error or some gap that has to be addressed so that we can produce the outcome that we're looking for. Is um, Do you see cybersecurity as a part of uh, what should be a part of a corporation's overall risk management strategy? Well, I do, and my thought process aligns with what a lot of professional associations recommend, and it also aligns with just good practice for enterprise risk management. So if you look at something like the COSO framework, that's an enterprise risk management framework, and it says that risk for the entire organization should be something that is thought about, is defined, is measured, and is prioritized at the board of directors level, and then everything else is pushed down through the rest of the organization. You get the same thing in ISO 31000. You get the same thing in recommendations from the National Association of Corporate Directors. Um, I'm not part of NACD, but their sister organization, the Private Directors Association, has similar recommendations. All of these bodies of knowledge and all of these organizations are saying that risk management has to start at the top. And then my perspective is simply that cybersecurity is one of the many risks that organizations need to be concerned with. But as one of many risks, it needs to have the same consideration as financial risk or project risk or operations risk or anything else. Then we just figure out what has the greatest impact on the organization and how we're going to manage it properly. I have to tell you, you have just won the ultimate gold star. You are the first cybersecurity professional who has referenced the COSO Enterprise Risk Management Framework, which is something I live by, uh, and I do a different type of compliance work uh, from you usually. Uh, so kudos for that. Uh, it's something that I find is an incredibly powerful tool uh, to talk to not only uh, compliance professionals and risk management professionals, but in a way to explain to other business professionals how this really is a process and you can integrate it all together. Yeah, one of the things that I like to express to my customers, because right now I work in professional services and as a professional services organization, we have the opportunity to work in many industries and many types of environments. But at the end of the day, we want people to understand that you need to recognize the risk that you're facing in the context of your business. And so using something like COSO allows us to standardize the process, and then we can start to bring in other frameworks where they make sense. Like COBIT works really well for IT governance, ITIL works really well for IT service management and IT service delivery. But all of those items have a relationship to cybersecurity because most of what you're doing for cybersecurity relates to the effectiveness of the technology and how well it's managed within the environment. And so if we start with COSO, we always end up with a consistent foundation for understanding, for quantifying, for documenting, and for prioritizing risk. I, I do work in and follow corporate governance issues quite a bit. And one of the uh, areas of greatest commentary is around boards and their role in cybersecurity risk management. When you have the chance to speak to senior management or boards, do well, I guess specifically boards, do they understand that they have a role in cybersecurity risk management and that they need to exercise that role? Or do they really say, well, we, we leave it to our IT professionals to handle that? Well, I think one of the challenges when you go to the board level is that most corporate boards are staffed by people with financial services backgrounds and their highest priority is either increasing revenue or protecting the level of revenue that's already being generated. 
And so if 99% of your board members are financial services people, they often don't have the same perspective about cybersecurity risk management or operations risk management that you would get if you had a more professionally diverse board that included IT people and HR people and cybersecurity people. And so in general, there is not enough understanding or knowledge or awareness about cybersecurity, but the companies that are doing very well have professionally diverse boards so that multiple perspectives are brought to bear. I think the um, the middle ground that I've seen that also works very well is very often boards that have a risk committee and that do um, enterprise risk management or have a chief risk officer perform much better when it comes to cyber risk because cyber risk is rolled up into the chief risk officer role or the risk committee is paying a lot of attention to all of the risks and then cybersecurity impacts are understood. And then the board is making better decisions about how to manage and treat those risks to, pre to prevent the impact from occurring. I'd like to change the focus a little bit and ask you about your, your company and your business. Um, it's, it has one of the great names of all time, I have to say, uh, Class LLC, but it, that's really an acronym. So I was wondering if you'd start off and talk about why you founded your own business and then what CLASS stands for. Sure. So in the beginning, as I said, I worked for the Centers for Disease Control for 12 years. And as a federal employee, I was very limited in what I could say publicly because people would think that I was representing the agency, not representing my original thoughts. And so I came up with class as an opportunity to protect my intellectual property. So I would publish things then under the name of the company rather than using my own name. I left the CDC and joined another organization and it worked great. It was a honeymoon experience for about a year. And then I found myself unexpectedly unemployed. And so I took what originally started as a solution to protect intellectual property and then just turned it into a consulting organization because I already had the tax ID number. I had the intellectual property protections. I had trademarks and all kinds of other things. And so it was a blessing that I had that in place because it created a smooth transition. Now, because of my work in federal government, one of the things that they teach you in government leadership is how to turn the names of really long things into pronounceable acronyms. So I spent a lot of time just thinking about what words come together to produce something that people can say very easily. And so I'll, as I was sitting around brainstorming is cybersecurity, I'm a leadership person more than a technical person. I'm a fan of strategy. It was one of the favorite things in my MBA program. And then we're providing solutions. And so moving the letters around and playing with it, we ended up with cyber leadership and strategy solutions, which allows the acronym of the company to be a double entendre. If I'm teaching, then it works because you go to class to learn. If we're doing um, events, then it's classy. Uh, once I showed up as the MC at an event and actually wore a tuxedo because is how high class you have a tuxedo. The only thing I was missing was the tails and the top hat, but all of that works together to provide some imagery, some branding and just product differentiation because we don't do any technical work. We're just focused on strategy program management and helping people to develop good processes that are gonna produce the results they're looking for. Could you give us some specific examples of the types of professional services you uh, perform? Sure. So I have a great client now that is a financial services organization that's in the Middle East. And their request was that I help them modernize and update their IT governance practices. So they had done a self-assessment. They determined that their IT governance on a maturity scale was at the lower end of the scale. 
They wanted to increase maturity over time, and some of the employees at the company were already familiar with my approach because they had been students in executive training that I'd done. And so the first phase of the project, we did an assessment. We understood how everything worked. We started mapping their practices to specific objectives in the COVID framework, and then we started filling in the gaps. Where a policy was missing, we documented a policy. Where they had no strategy, because strategic planning is one of my strengths, we came up with a framework for them to assess, do the SWOT analysis, document the gaps, and then develop a 24-month plan to address all of the items. And it's very business-oriented, but it had the benefit of also improving their security controls because one of the COVID objectives is called managed security, and it forces you to evaluate the effectiveness of your information security management system. And so where most people know me for cybersecurity, dealing with IT governance allowed us to do a security project, a business project, and an IT project all wrapped into one statement of work that produced great outcomes for the organization. So the um, uh, the needs, rather, uh, of cyber, can you help a company understand how they their cyber risk management strategy can grow as their company grows, or is that uh, really a conversation for sometime after you've done the initial implementation of a cybersecurity risk management system? Well, for all of our consulting engagements, the statement of work always lists business impact analysis as one of the phase one objectives. If we as consultants develop a really good understanding of your business how you operate, how you use technology to produce whatever it is you're going to produce, then we're in a much better position to rate short-term, medium-term, and long-term recommendations about what you're going to do for security. You know, really quickly, I have another client where we're at the very beginning of the relationship, and we've said that we really need to understand what you're doing and where you're going and so that we can prioritize different security initiatives because it's cost prohibitive to try to throw the entire bucket of what we call security controls at an organization. But if I understand your organization, now I can identify, is encryption more important? Is access control more important? Is incident response more important? There are about 20 different control categories that you could implement. The right ones to implement in the beginning are part of that outcome from doing the impact analysis and understanding the business, understanding their budget, understanding their capabilities and pointing them in the right direction. So in my compliance world, uh, the regulators in the form of the U.S. Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission ha- have changed their approach to risk assessments. It used to be, if you did one, a comprehensive risk assessment every two years or perhaps every year, and then built out based on the result of that, that was uh, going to be satisfactory. But now they've moved to a much more nimble, agile, and robust risk management strategy, which basically says... Uh, if you're a business change, you need to do a updated risk assessment for that business change and not necessarily focus on uh, an enterprise-wide risk assessment. Would that be the same in your world uh, as well? It's, it's the way that we teach in the executive class that I mentioned. It's also the way that we operate when we're working with clients. Um, when you look at risk management academically, one of the foundational principles is that you always do an assessment in the beginning. And then you always do a new assessment whenever the situation changes. And under ideal circumstances, you should also do a risk assessment at least annually. And so if you combine in the beginning, if something changes, and at least annually, 
those three criteria mean that you're always going to evaluate the risk for everything that you're doing within the organization as an ongoing process, rather than something that just checks a box. And the adoption of an ongoing integrated approach ensures that you recognize new risks that were unaccounted for so that you can then plan treatment and reduce the likelihood that something bad is going to happen because preventive measures are always cheaper than remediation when something has gone wrong. Um, let me turn to your service offering of cyber strategic retreat. Could you describe what that is and how you have uh, utilized that in the past? Sure. So the um, the cyber strategy retreat is a fun event that intentionally brings business and technology and security people who care about risk management together under one umbrella. Um, you know, I've been a CISO. I have been well, I have been and am now the owner of an organization. But what generally happens for industry events is that everybody's pulled together in a silo. CIOs go to CIO events, CISOs go to CISO events, engineers go to engineering events. There are very few opportunities for diverse professional backgrounds to come together and have a single conversation. But cybersecurity doesn't work in a silo. And so I created the event based on bad experiences that I had at other events and based on events that I had run in different roles for different organizations. And the idea really was to talk about all of the things that work together to develop a good cybersecurity strategy. And for each of the sessions that we provided, starting in 2009, all the way through 2020, we've done six conferences. Each one of those conferences in every location has gotten good reviews because we had interesting people they weren't talking about the technology, but they were talking about business and process and approach and strategy, which allows everybody to take that and apply it to their work as soon as they go back to the office after the conference. Why do you advocate strategic thinking and find it to be so important in the cybersecurity realm? Well, one of the challenges with cybersecurity is that technology changes rapidly. So the tools that you have change rapidly, but if you're not mapping your tools to some kind of plan, you're constantly running around playing whack-a-mole. You know, we can say strategically that we want to reduce risk by 20% over the next five years, which produces a strategic plan. And now in our execution, if we're averaging it out, we're going to say, hey, every year we're going to do something that reduces our risk by 4% so that at the end of five years, we've reduced our overall risk by 20%. That kind of approach where we're thinking about the goal instead of focusing just on the execution day by day helps us manage our budget effectively. It helps you describe the value that you're producing. One of the biggest challenges with security people is that they can never communicate the value of what they're doing to the business because what they're doing isn't tied to a specific plan or objective. And so if I can think strategically, now I can justify my budget, my spending, my priorities. I can bring the business in and get the business aligned with what we're doing because if I've done it properly, my security strategy should map to and reinforce whatever corporate goals and objectives were defined at the board and the senior executive level. And now everybody understands what I'm doing, why I am doing it, and why it costs what it costs. Now we see it as something that adds value to the organization rather than something that we're doing simply for the sake of compliance. We are recording this podcast in late December, some nine months into the coronavirus health crisis. And how, uh, if any, has the health crisis we've all endured over the past nine months uh, uh, changed your approach or perhaps uh, changed the types of questions you are getting from your client and customer base? 
Well, because of my work at the CDC and because I was a chemical and biological weapons specialist, I get a lot of interesting questions just about my thoughts related to public health in general. Um, I've been invited to be the keynote speaker at a couple of conferences. So we talked about the intersection of the crisis and in health informatics and how are you providing some level of confidence and the results that are produced. And so that's unique for 2020. People probably don't wanna to talk to me about that in 2021 as we move on to other things. Uh, corporately, the way we operate has not been significantly affected. We used to do live training, but I've done more training virtually because it's more accessible. You know, my overhead cost has been reduced because instead of renting a training center or a conference room at a hotel, now we just do everything virtually. And so we've made small adjustments, but because I'm in the training and professional services areas, those are very resilient when the way that you meet and collaborate with people have changed. My only disappointment is that I had a fabulous travel calendar. So I was going to interesting places all over the world and I have not been anywhere since March. And so I missed Australia and Southeast Asia and some other locations in Europe that I was really excited to go to because there's nothing like talking to somebody, looking them in their eyes, shaking their hand and developing a relationship. It's very different doing that virtually. And I look forward to going back to the old school way of doing business and developing relationships with customers and clients. Of all the uh, tragedies, uh, insanity, and things that have gone on this year, uh, we've had, at least in the US, the biggest cyber attack probably ever in the form of solar winds. And so I was wondering, and I really wanted to, uh, it was intrigued to ask you on your thoughts about that, but what is that gonna mean for the business community going forward? Uh, in my experience, we, when either the regulators do something or something happens to the regulators, that's kind of step one, moving it into the corporate world. Do you see that as well, or is this something completely different? Well, what I think happens with SolarWinds is that SolarWinds is really an IT company, not a security company. And when you look at the outcome of the breach of SolarWinds, it was less about SolarWinds was breached and more about what can every organization to do to manage their third-party risk when I depend on a cloud service provider or a third party has remote access to my environment. And so SolarWinds on a much larger scale is the exact same thing that happened in Texas where numerous municipalities were compromised because the attackers got access to the environment of a service provider. Lots of people subscribed to that service provider. And then the service provider was the channel or the mechanism that led to the cyber attack. And so SolarWinds is the same story, just on a much larger scale. And so what I try to do is avoid picking on SolarWinds because anybody can be breached, anybody can have a compromise. Uh, companies with significant capabilities still have problems. What every individual organization has to think about is how are we assessing and managing the risk in the complex environments that we're operating? You know, I see a lot of situations where people are using cloud services, but they're not configured properly. So then they're, they've hosted everything that they have in somebody else's environment, but then anybody can get access to it. It defeats the purpose of having it in the cloud because you've exposed it to unnecessary, uncontrollable risk. And so I'd like to turn the SolarWinds situation around and just use that to promote better practices corporately, better evaluation of vendors. What I think, if, what I think at the board level 
that SolarWinds is going to produce is that boards are going to have a greater appetite and interest in having those conversations, which is going to lead them to analyze with more scrutiny the vendor relationships that they have and the controls that they can put in place to prevent that from happening to them. It almost sounds as if uh, it's maybe target um, part two in terms of lessons learned where the lesson there, I don't think, or for many people was, you need to uh, take a look at uh, your service providers, your third parties, who are doing work for you to test uh, their resiliency as well. Yeah, a lot of people overlook service providers because they just don't spend enough on their own security programs. And so if I have an immature security program, what basis exists for me to evaluate the program of my third party organizations? And so, I think this is a great advocacy for every organization to do their own self-assessment about their own practices, to consider how do they enforce the good practices that they have to make sure that the vendors are doing at least the same level of security. What I imagine is that if you did an assessment of all of the people affected by solar winds, more than half of them probably have security programs that are at a lower maturity level than solar winds was. And so there was really no basis for them to ask the right questions to manage the risks that they were exposed to. So maybe the moral of this story is that everybody needs to improve their own security so that the ecosystem is more resilient and is gonna have less impact when one organization within that ecosystem has a problem. And unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself or your company, where could they go? Yeah, so LinkedIn is probably the best place to connect if you just want to share information, ask questions, or exchange ideas. And my LinkedIn profile is just linkedin.com slash in slash Keon, K-E-Y-A-A-N. If you're interested in our services, then you can just go to class-llc.com. And there's all kinds of fun information there. But my mission really is to connect with people, to share good information, to point them in the right direction. And as a bonus, if they end up being a customer. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, my suggestion would be, number one, you go to LinkedIn right now and uh, link up and connect with Keon, but also go to his site and uh, uh, connect with him uh, because the information and services you provided are incredibly important and only going to get more important. Keon, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me. I greatly I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you very much for having me. It was good to share. Dusty Rollins here. Thank you so much for listening to Profiles in Persistence. If you are a successful business owner or entrepreneur who would like to be on this program, please visit thetaxcure.com slash podcast slash apply. And if you got something out of this interview, would you share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag Profiles in Persistence. I love seeing your posts and your guest suggestions. We're regularly putting out new episodes and content, so make sure you don't miss any episodes and go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to our website, www.thetaxcure.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time.